Rudyard Griffiths here, the executive director of The Hub. Welcome to the Friday Roundtable. Each week on this program, we dig into the big issues and ideas shaping the public conversation with Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, and Stuart Thompson, our editor-in-chief. The goal of these weekly programs is to leave you with some new analysis and insights into the week that was. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Gronowski Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening. Sean Stewart, welcome to the Roundtable. Hey, guys. Hey, guys. Great to connect, as always. Okay, we are in the back half of July, the proverbial dog days of summer. What better opportunity to engage in some rank political speculation? It's a target-rich environment, thankfully. And at the center of that target, the bullseye is a potential cabinet shuffle um, for next week that could either be a sign that this is a government that's resetting in a fundamental way to uh, to prepare for an election or prepare to see out what remains of its agreement with the NDP, or is this going to be something different? Uh, could we read, Stuart, some tea leaves out of next week to understand whether this prime minister is indeed is sticking around for another kick at the ballot box? What are you going to be looking for when it comes to this shuffle? Yeah, I, I think whatever happens this team that emerges from the cabinet shuffle is the team going into the next election. I don't think there'll be a big one between now and then, even if it's two years out. Um, And I think, you know, a good exercise here, if you were to do like a fantasy sports draft of who you would put in all of these big positions, you know, the top cabinet spots, uh, it probably wouldn't change all that much. You might mostly leave it the same. And I think that's probably what we'll see is, you know, there's a team that's kind of assembled around Trudeau, which is Freeland and Jolie and Champagne and Anita Anand at defense, um, probably they'll just stay there. And I, I think we'll see some rearranging going on. I think a lot of people are expecting Marco Mendicino um, to move to, to either be turfed or go to something uh, with a little less responsibility. Um, but I don't see a lot of changes here. And I think that short, sort of shows you the trouble for this government is the team they've got is the team they've got. Um, and most of what they're hoping for politically will have to come, I think, from Justin Trudeau. Mm. Well, Sean, to go back to trying to figure out what should we be looking for next week, if Stuart's right, and this is more of a cosmetic shuffle, let's say to deal with Mendicino, we can talk about Pablo Rodriguez in a second, but if it is more cosmetic than substantive, doesn't that set up uh, a scenario whereby the prime minister really is is you know doing some light redecorating <laughs> potentially to allow another liberal leader to take this party into the next election that that would be my premise of what to look for next week if this is cosmetic and light it suggests to me that this is a prime minister who is thinking about an exit before the next election if it's substantive and we see new people coming out of the parliamentary caucus into cabinet, then I think, Sean, and correct me if I'm wrong, that could be a sign that this is a more substantive reboot, and this is a a prime minister who, come hell or high water, is going to put his name 
on the ballot paper could be as early as this autumn, could be as late as 2025. We don't know. But is that the right way to think about this shuffle? Yeah, there, there, there might be something to that. Um, you know, the, as I understand it, um, the potential post-Trudeau leadership politics are always at the backdrop of this government. And in recent weeks and months, the prospective successors have been told to stand down. Um, that is to say that all things being equal, the prime minister does intend to take the party uh, into the next election. The, the biggest challenge, guys, for the prime minister and the government is not unique to them. Um, it is hard for a, a government after several years, particularly one that's been through something so extraordinary as the COVID-19 pandemic, to remain evergreen and fresh and forward looking. Um, I was racking my brain, guys, trying to think of instances when governments have been able to do that on the fly and essentially reoffer as uh, you know something of a new government, even though, of course, it's an incumbent. And it's hard to think of the the one the the two examples that come to mind uh, are ones in which the 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 premier or the leader of the party changed. I think, for instance, of the Ontario Liberals replacing Dalton McGuinty with Kathleen Wynne and getting another election victory out of it. Uh, similarly, in British Columbia, when Christy Clark uh, replaced Gordon Campbell and managed to get one more win um, before finally turning over the reins to power. And so, the extent to which those examples loom over uh, internal thinking uh, within the Liberal Party, you know, it may point in the direction that you raise, Rudyard, which is in the absence of a, a change at the top, it's going to be hard for this government to present itself as new and different and worthy of a, another term in office. Mm -hmm. I mean, Stuart, we're contemplating and discussing this shuffle. We don't have an agreement yet on a public inquiry into Chinese election interference. Um, and again, I don't want to read too much into this, but it just seems odd to me that, you know, the government hasn't formally conceded on that. Um, it was an absolutely bruising, punishing six months of uh, Chinese water torture, no pun intended, um, through the course of the endless set of revelations uh, that came out of the CSIS leaks um, and the media. And instead of putting a pin in that and moving forward with an inquiry, we're now into a cabinet shuffle. I don't know. My spidey sense tells me that this government, something we've discussed in the past, um, and the prime minister's comments about the Bank of Canada, which were surprising in the last week, um, if not critical, uh, clearly a prime minister is unhappy with these rate hikes because we know all these mortgages are going to start resetting in larger and larger numbers. That's not a good backdrop to be going for re-election yet again. I wonder, guys, if if I see a big cabinet reshuffle next week, a substantive set of new faces, no agreement on a public inquiry. I got to wonder if a fall election isn't something that's starting to become less and less of a, a long odds proposition. Yeah, I, I think Sean mentioned during the, the Chinese uh, election interference scandal that the best way to handle these things is to figure out the endpoint and then get there as quickly as you can, because you know it's going to happen, rip the Band-Aid off. And from all that we're hearing, 
there's not a lot still to be decided among the parties on this. So it's not like there's some big sticking point that they're battling about right now. It just seems like the government's ragging the puck. So um, I think that just leaves it wide open to conspiracy theories. So I'm I'm happy to engage in that. Um, (laughs) But I think also, you know, it does really show you what kind of a state the government's in right now, that if they were going to a fall election, what are they going in with? I mean, the the thing they've achieved seemingly since the last election is the NDP's priority of this dental plan that hasn't even really fold out, uh, rolled out properly. So I, I think that is a tough situation to be in. And then if you're looking down the road at economic turmoil, I, that's just adding layers of difficulty on here for the Liberals. Yeah, Sean, just- yeah, what was your take on the prime minister's kind of swipe at the Bank of Canada, and what do you, where do you think that puts this government in terms of its thinking around, you know, this cabinet shuffle, the potential desirability of an election? I would argue, you know, sooner rather than later. Yeah, I think there's something to that, Roger. That um, you know, there's the known unknowns, and then the unknown unknowns. And, um, you know, I think it's pretty clear in polls that the government would go into a, a sh- an election in the short term, um, with the need to make up some ground. Um, but the risk, of course, is come 2025, uh, it could be facing a whole new set of challenges, including, um, as you mentioned, uh, the growing number of Canadians who are renewing their mortgages at higher rates than they initially took. Uh, I just make a couple of of quick observations, though, uh, to throw into the conversation. The first is uh, the one challenge behind a talk of uh, replacing the the prime minister as party leader is um, although he's polarizing uh, and and that, I think, is oftentimes ignored, that if you look at national polls, um, uh, he has pretty high disapprovals, almost as much as Pierre, Pierre Polyev. Um, But he's still the guy who took the party from third place to first place in 2015. I mean, his coattails are still on the face of it, the, the longest of any uh, um, immediate alternative. And, and so in that sense, um, you know, it seems to me there's this great risk replacing them as there is in keeping him. Um, the second thing I would say, which draws a bit on my experience in Ottawa, including into 2015, when in hindsight, it was obvious that the Harper government um, uh, had itself become something of a spent force, is it's just hard, guys, to refresh the agenda. Governing is um, busy and transactional, and uh, it's, you know, you spend as much time keeping up on the day-to-day monotony of governing as you do about thinking about new ideas and new priorities and so on. I think it was Henry Kissinger, Rudyard, I'll let you correct me because I know you're history buff, it was Kissinger who said that being in government involves spending down intellectual capital. And um, it's hard to build that back up within government. And I think that's manifests itself in in the past several months for the Trudeau government. And as, and as uh, Stuart says, it's not obvious um, what it would what it what its value proposition would be in the next election, except um, that that the prime minister is not Pierre Polyev. And I'm not sure that's going to be good enough anymore. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's why I continue to think that a leadership change probably is less likely to happen than happen. But as a rational strategy for the Liberal Party to try to fight off the threat of, uh, of Pierre Polyev and his um, his brand of more kind of populist conservative politics, I think would be the easiest and most effective strategy versus putting up 
a prime minister and a, a politician now that we know, like, as as with Harper, sometimes it's no fault of their own. I think it is some fault in the case of this prime minister, but you reach your sell by date. The public gets tired of you. They get tired of your voice. Um, they get tired of you rolling up your shirt sleeves and every single photograph that you seem to take. <laughs> um, I could go through the list of things that, you know, I'm sure people would be pretty pissed off and annoyed with me if they'd, you know, been exposed to my idiosyncrasies <laughs> for the last seven years. I know you guys are just barely <laughs> holding on after three years of the hub. So I can only imagine what Canadian voters um, would think of yours truly. Um, but Stuart, all this goes to the final thing I wanted to touch on this first half of the show, our kind of recap of uh, politics in the dog days of summer, you know, the prime minister meeting these protesters in Belleville in a somewhat um, incendiary, you know, scene, um, Trump flags, yelling, shouting, this uh, RCMP kind of pushing uh, two women away from uh, the, uh, the prime minister's convoy. What was that all about? Uh, who does that play to? Um, Again, it just suggests to me that there's this current out there, and I'm sure the prime minister doesn't particularly care about them, or maybe he even thinks these people are in a political advantage to him. But I just, I think there is just a deep dissatisfaction that has set in simply as a result of being past your sell by date, too much time in the in the storefront window, and Canadians still kind of roiled up by the pandemic. Yeah, this so this is the Rorschach test of the last election where at the beginning of the campaign, there were protests like this. And Trudeau and his team thought that was good for them. This image of these angry lunatics screaming at him and then him being the prime minister created this contrast that they were hoping for. And then things got a little too real. There was, you know, rock throwing and there was a threat of violence. And I think they kind of realized that they were playing games with someone, something that is a little more serious than they realized. And I have always wondered, I don't know for sure. I've looked at polling and I have my theories, but I don't know if we know conclusively how much of this current is running through sort of average Canadians, people who are going about their jobs. They're still feeling a little disaffected, um, a little alienated after the pandemic. And they feel like government institutions, regardless of the party, just don't represent them. And that's the thing that Polyev tapped into. And it is the thing that could either sink or make Polyev sink or swim because I think Canadians don't like the angriness. I don't think they like the anger and the yelling. Um, but if it's representing something that they themselves feel, you know, this could go another way. So I think mm -hmm. the liberals are taking this a little more seriously than they have in the past. A lot of this stuff about the vaccine mandates in the last campaign was very glib politics where it was um, polarizing people for political advantage in a way that was probably bad for the country. Uh, and I just hope that we take that stuff a little more seriously uh, going forward. In that vein, guys, uh, maybe just to wrap up with an observation about Polyev and the Conservatives. Um, you know, the one th lesson I hope that they're learning is the difference between the 2004 campaign in which the Liberals managed to eke out a minority government and the 2006 campaign in which Stephen Harper formed the, formed the first conservative government since the 1990s. The major difference there was in 2004, the conservatives didn't have much of a platform. Um, you know, it seems to me 
the they expected the, the liberals to effectively defeat defeat themselves in the context of the sponsorship scandal. It wasn't until 2006 when they they combined a, a case against the government about the sponsorship scandal with a, a set of uh, affirmative policies, including, of course, uh, lowering the GST, amongst other things. Um, that it was able to break through. And it, it seems to me that the key lesson there is it's not enough to simply prosecute a case against the government. At some point, the conservatives will have to pivot to talk about the affirmative case for them, what, what a conservative government would look like. Um, and that's the piece of the puzzle that I think everyone is still waiting on um, mm -hmm. and that there'll be some onus on Pierre Polyev to start to sketch out uh, in the coming weeks and months. Mm-hmm. Final reflection on this, you know, I think Nick Nanos this last week or so gave at least a piece of that puzzle, you know, one of his kind of larger surveys of Canadian attitudes, depressing to see that, you know, fully three quarters of Canadians basically feel the future is going to be worse than the past. We've become a deeply pessimistic country. And I, this is not to justify the people raging at the prime minister Belleville, but they are symptomatic of a larger, not simply malaise, but anger about a feeling of um, a country slipping away, um, uh, a, a standard of living, a series of expectations about their lives and the potential that they and their children should have to explore their agency as you know, free and independent people in this great country of ours. And I think the real opportunity for Polyev or someone is to come forward and once again, make a full-throated case for Canada as a nation of strivers and thrivers. We need yeah. way more uh, energy, not just in our politics, but in our economy and in our society to say, this is not a, good enough. We are not going to accept Alabama levels of per capita GDP. This is not the future of our country. We resist this. We are an energetic, dynamic people that will strive and thrive together. And I will get government out of your way so that you can do that. I think that is the type of message that a lot of Canadians want to hear because these numbers, guys, it's it's horrible to think about a future of a country if we can't turn those numbers around. Three quarters of Canadians basically thinking their future is going to be worse than their past. That's unacceptable. You're here. You're here. Okay, let's take a quick break. Back on the other side, we're going to kick the can again on big tech. Some interesting developments, a kind of extension of the dispute between two of the big platforms, Google and Meta and the government over C-18, boiling and roiling up in new and different ways that suggests possibly that big tech is involved in an even bigger flexing of its muscle, not just in Canada, but across Western countries. We'll have that for you right after this break. Hi, Hub Podcast listeners. Rudyard Griffiths here, the executive director of The Hub wanted to ask for your support today. No, I'm not asking for money. I'm asking for your attention. If you could check out right now in our podcast feed, a new series that we're dropping. It's six episodes in partnership with a group called Pathways Alliance. This is the Canadian Industry Association that's tasked with the 
the big ambitious project of decarbonizing Canada's oil sands. They want to achieve net zero by 2050, and we want to have a conversation with them and you about how to achieve this ambitious goal. Pathways is the hub's first national media and advertising partner. Their support helps us make all these other great podcasts. So if you're enjoying them, please listen to these episodes with Pathways. Give us your feedback. We'd love your input, but also share them with friends and family. That would be greatly appreciated. Well, with that advertisement over, let's go back to our regular programming. Welcome back to the Hub Roundtable. Rudyard Griffiths here, the Executive Director of the Hub. I'm joined by Stuart Thompson, our Editor-in-Chief, Sean Spear, our Editor-at-Large. Okay, guys, um, we've talked about C18 in the past, so no need to you know, re-litigate the merits and demerits of this act to get Meta and Google to pay for Canadian journalism ostensibly on the basis of compensating news organizations for their content. What I want to get your reaction to, guys, I'm going to come to you first, Stuart, is a series of seemingly unrelated, and I'm sure uncoordinated, but nonetheless, to me, concerning little uh, eruptions of you know, big tech, uh, what's the right word? Are they pissed off? Are they ornery? I'm not sure, but we have three little data points. One, Google saying Bard, their latest uh, chat bot, arguably more powerful and better than chat GPT-4, isn't coming to Canada. Um, because, hey, we're having a disagreement with the government over a piece of legislation that has nothing to do with AI, but we're going to punish you by not giving you BARD, and we're going to lump you in with you know, Afghanistan, China, Russia, and North Korea as the only other countries worldwide who won't have BARD. Then add to that blocking by Meta, not of only of Canadian news sources, but people seeing American and international news sources blocked on meta platforms inside Canada. So you can't read, say, the New York Times on Instagram. Really weird. And then finally, Apple, this usual, you know, supposed kind of saint of the, the big tech trifecta, flexing in Great Britain saying, hey, if you make some changes in the encryption protocols around our messaging service, we're going to pull Apple iMessage from, uh, from Europe and, uh, and basically push back against law enforcement who, in some cases, legitimately wants to see what people are iMessaging to each other to stop and prevent crimes and terrorism. What the heck's going on here, Stuart? Why is big tech suddenly in the middle of summer choosing to to flex its power and prerogatives uh, in this way. Yeah, some of these have been long running battles too. I mean, the Apple one on encryption is an interesting uh, version of this, but I do think something has changed in our relationship to big tech. Whereas you know, Sean has mentioned in 2015, when the liberals came into power, they wanted to be associated with these guys. Big tech was the coolest thing. Uh, it was sort of an optimistic part of our society. They were doing all the big things and everyone wanted that kind of reflected glory. Um, I, though, as a reporter, have sat in privacy committee meetings, listening to MPs 
talk about tech and a lot of them not understanding it at all and struggling to make decisions about these technologies. And I do understand the encryption one specifically, I think Apple has a really good case, which is that as part of their uh, product, they want to be really good at privacy and encryption. And their point is, if you put a backdoor into our encryption, it ruins it for everybody. Therefore, it's, it's now doesn't work. And that case, that argument always happens the same way in every country that tries to do this, which is that the politicians say, no, 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 we just want something for police. And then Apple says the whole idea of encryption is that nobody can get in there, even us, even Apple. You know, it's just something that has to be locked tight. And I think that sometimes they have a point and sometimes such as with C18, um, you know, they're maybe overstepping their mark, but the trouble is they're no longer getting the benefit of the doubt from politicians or from sort of average citizens. Yeah, I'd, I'd raise two points and then uh, turn it over to Rudyard um, to hear his perspective. But the two ideas I put on the table uh, to move the conversation along are first, I think one of the reasons we're seeing um, this level of combativeness on part of some of these big tech firms is is because they know they have the backing of the U.S. government. Um, you, you know, just this week, Christia Freeland confirmed that the government does intend to move ahead with the digital sales tax. And we had the ambassador uh, in Ottawa, the American ambassador in Ottawa, essentially saying that the U.S. government will re will retaliate. Um, similarly, uh, the U.S. government has made uh, similar statements uh, in, in the context of C-18. I'm often reminded, guys, of my time in Ottawa when Canadian companies were either trying to secure contracts abroad or protect themselves against um, policies in other jurisdictions. You know, they'd have a hard time getting letters out of cabinet ministers, let alone uh, proactive action. But I think the U.S. state, uh, this isn't a partisan observation, I think it's kind of core to the DNA of the U.S. state, understands it's part of its function and responsibility is to protect and advance the interests of American companies around the world. And that includes big tech and they know it. And, and that's one of the reasons that they're flexing their muscles. The, the second point I'd raise though, which I, I think reflects some of the unease that you, that, that you outlined Rudyard is that one gets the sense that they, there, there is a risk that they overreach here, that uh, in a world in which national borders uh, appear to matter more than they did, say, in advance of the pandemic, um, in which the world is bifurcating in a way that it, it hadn't uh, prior to the pandemic, um, you know, there there are going to have to make some calls about uh, which team they're on. And, and they're, one of the reasons Google, I think, is in particular has become the subject of growing scrutiny on the part of politicians, including in D.C., is that on one hand, it purports to be uh, a kind of global player with no real um, uh, home or, or or any sense of national loyalties or whatever. On the other hand, it has partnered directly on different projects with the Chinese state. Um, and so it just seems to me that a part of what we're seeing here is that these companies um, haven't kind of updated their understanding of the world to reflect um, um, some of the changes that we've talked about at the hub and the kind of importance to root themselves in place or risk being um, becoming the subject of of policy targets like we've seen in, in Canada. What's uh, what's your sense, Rudyard? Well, I think of all these different developments in the last week to 10 days, I think the one listeners should pay the most attention to and follow is this banning of BARD, uh, Google's um, 
AI chatbot from Canada, ostensibly over the C-18 disagreement. That to me is a, is a really significant step. Uh, again, because look, I'm sure Google can make some case that Bard might be caught up. Maybe it uses and ingests news content as part of its learning algorithm. But what it effectively Google's doing there is it's saying, we as one of the world world's leading companies in AI are going to deny you access to our AI tools, which we all know in the future will be what demarcates countries, corporations, maybe even individuals from those who can succeed and compete successfully and those who can't. So to me, that that is not just a decision that some general manager at Google Canada made late on a Friday afternoon. This suggests to me something that is being decided at the very top of this company, which is that we have this incredible uh, technology that arguably only a few companies in the world can develop because we have the data sets, we have all of your emails, all of your uh, search. Uh, we are training these, um, these machine intelligences on our proprietary data using our proprietary large language models. And guess what? We're gonna pick our friends and we're gonna punish our enemies. This guy's, it, this is serious stuff. If this technology is Larry Summers and others, and I, I've written in the hub, if this truly is a general purpose technology on, on power and of the similar significance to, let's say, the splitting of the atom 75 years ago, well, look, we understood that a dual use technology like nuclear weapons, biological, chemical, these things can light cities up, they can destroy cities. That dual use ability of these large, powerful technologies meant that at the end of the day, they were the purview of nation states, not corporations. We, we didn't allow Boeing or General Motors to create atomic airplanes or atomic powered cars. No, these were the assets of the sovereign state. You now have these AI companies, in, in the case of Google, saying, no, these are our assets. Only we can develop them. Only we have the data. And we're going to use them increasingly like a sovereign nation would, use an atomic weapon or use uh, the threat of an atomic weapon to forge uh, and create a world that is to our liking, that again, rewards our friends and punishes our enemies. And I'll just wrap this up saying, I hope this was a mistake of Google and I hope that they walk this back because if they're gonna politicize and weaponize AI in this way, this suggests guys a really dystopian future isn't you know, 10, 15 years out, it is right on our horizon. They're gonna use the commanding technology of the 21st century to refashion the world, including nation states and democracies of which we are the citizens of into things that are in their image and of their liking. That is dystopian, that is really scary. And whether you're a progressive or a conservative, you should be 100% against that. Am I wrong, Sean?
Yeah, uh, these are uh, big questions. Um, you know, I think what I would say um, before we get to um, nationalizing AI is that I, I I do think that there is a, a kind of onus on these companies to, as I say, recognize that the world is changing. Um, and, you know, a company, take, take Apple, for instance, you know, Apple has come under con considerable pressure in, in, in recent years because of uh, its reliance on uh, on China for crucial inputs uh, into its technology, even I think allegations that it, that it's used either knowingly or unknowingly uh, slave labor and uh, in in uh, China, and so I, it just seems to me that these companies need to recognize um, that there is a kind of renewed nationalism. Uh, manifesting itself around the world and they they need to be uh, i think more cognizant of that um but sean it's, they... it's more than that though the, in this case again i hope this is just a dumb mistake by google they are using bard their premier ai tool that's available in over 200 countries but canada russia north korea china and iran to pursue a legislative agenda vis-a-vis -vis the Canadian government over Bill C-18. Okay, so they, they're turning these technologies against us already. <laughs> they, they haven't even waited. Yeah, it's a fascinating question. I guess we'll learn more about their, their intentions at, at some point soon. I can also just point out that it also is incumbent on governments to make sure the regulation isn't terrible because we're looking at, say, GDPR in the, in the EU, you know, every time you go to a website and you get those annoying things about cookies that nobody reads and then just clicks accept all, that is because of very clumsy legislation in the EU. And the some of the legislation around search engines has created necessary bureaucracy in these companies that means there's no possible competition for Google because they're the only ones who can afford to comply uh, with the European regulations. So I... I think there's two sides of this. One is the responsibility of the companies, but also we can't have this kind of regulation that just seems sort of populist and ill thought out because I think it tends to do the opposite of what is intended. Mm -hmm. I mean, my final thought here is look uh, very soon. And again, I don't think this is a decade or more away. I think it's closer than that. We're, we're going to come to some inflection point and we're either going to let these companies um, have an, an exclusive license and use of what is the commanding technology of the 21st century, artificial intelligence. This will be raw power. Intelligence is power. At the end of the day, that's what intelligence is. So we either let these companies wield this power to whatever their interests are, or we find some way to curtail that power and in the case of democracy is ensure that that power is is shared by the state and the elected represent our elected representatives within the state have some say over how that power shapes our society maybe the right maybe now the, maybe the people who run the passport office can can take over responsibility for artificial well sean, i can't I mean, see that going wrong well sean i mean <laughs> we we can all be cynical all the time. You wrote a column this week saying maybe we shouldn't be as cynical <laughs> as, as as all that. And I would say on this issue, if we succumb to cynicism, then you know 
we might as well just roll out the red carpet now to our tech master AI overlords because like they're putting up the bunting already. They've got, they've got the bands ready to go, the music cued. And it's a question of whether we sit here like frogs in a pond, pick your analogy, waiting in a sense for these companies to effectively turn them into their own 21st century versions of sovereign states with, in different ways, nonetheless, enjoying to some extent equivalent powers that they will use again to punish their enemies and reward their friends like they're doing right now in Canada, grouping us with North Korea, Russia, China, Afghanistan, the Taliban. Come on, guys. Where's the outrage? And that's my final question to you, Stuart. Like, where's the outrage? I don't think the media is really covering this. It's just like, again, oh, these tech companies, I know, really, they're, they're, they're all just there to, to make us look good on Instagram. <laughs> I just don't get it. Yeah, as far as the media goes, I think the fixation is on C18 too. So I think these sort of broader issues don't necessarily get covered. And I think also when you're in a cost of living crisis, a lot of this stuff kind of fades into the background. Yeah, well, hopefully we put it in your foreground, listener, uh, this weekend to think about, reflect on, follow these stories because we're going to continue to do that at the hub each and every day. Sean Stewart, enjoy. What is this? The second last weekend of July. The summer is slipping by. Um, get out there, get some sun, find a lake to throw yourself into. Um, that's what every Canadian deserves um, in the dog days of summer. Thank you for listening to the Friday Roundtable. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub. I've been in conversation with Sean Spear, our Editor-at-Large, and Stuart Thompson, The Hub's Editor-in-Chief. This program was produced and edited by Amal Atter Guzman. You can access audio versions on our website at www.thehub.ca. And finally, you can subscribe to The Hub podcast feed on virtually any audio program. We've got all kinds of terrific conversations featuring some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers discussing the big issues and ideas transforming our world. Available right now for your listening pleasure. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira and Maxine Granowski Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.